Today, I'm very pleased and honored to have with me as my guest, uh, Daniel James Brown, who's a New York Times bestselling author, who's the author of this fantastic book called The Boys in the Boat, very well-known, terrific, terrific book. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, Daniel, let me start by asking you, um, how did you stumble onto this story? What is the genesis of this book? Yeah, this story actually literally walked into my life um, about eight years ago. Uh, One of my neighbors, a lady I knew then only as Judy, came to me, and um, she said that she had been reading uh, one of my earlier books to her dad. Uh, Her dad was living at her home under hospice care, and um, he had only a couple months to live. But he he was enjoying that uh, earlier book, and he wanted to meet me, so... I think it was the next day I went down to Judy's house and I met this elderly gentleman named Joe Rance. And um, Joe was weak. He was on oxygen, but he was very alert mentally. And uh, he began to talk about his life story growing up as an adolescent. And he had a very, very moving story to tell about that. Uh, but then he started talking about how he... Uh, and some other guys had come together at the University of Washington beginning in the fall of 1933 and um, had wound up being the crew team for the University of Washington that wound up going to the uh, 1936 Olympics in Berlin and rowing against, amongst others, a German boat uh, in front of Adolf Hitler. And uh, as Joe was telling me this story, I was just absolutely mesmerized by it. So really that first meeting with uh, with Joe Rance um, got me started. Wow, what a coincidence to meet uh, someone like that and that and for that to be the cornerstone of your book. Yeah, it was just, you know, sheer happenstance. I, I happened to be at that stage where I was starting to look for the subject for another book. But usually I'm, I'm very picky about uh, finding topics. And um, this one, I was so moved by the story that, um, you know, within 24 hours, I was 100% committed to it. That's pretty amazing. And you didn't know the story, I assume, at all um, before then? No, I knew nothing about the story. There are people uh, here in the Seattle area who are old enough to remember uh, what happened, because it was a big deal, uh, particularly here in the Northwest back in 1936. But by and large, the story, those who knew the story have have passed on, and the story was really pretty much dying out. So it it was certainly news to me. Well, it's so amazing because your timing could not have been better because Joe was, I guess you said, in his, in his uh, final uh, final years. But you got to, it sounds like you got to him in time. Yeah, actually, as it turned out, he was in his final months. Um, Joe just lived uh, a couple of months after I met him. Um, but his daughter, uh, Judy, fortunately for me, uh, had um, she had followed her dad around for the well, the last five years or so of his life, um, taking notes. She had thought of herself about maybe writing a book about it. And um, and so she had asked him all kinds of very, very detailed questions about his life and his experience on this crew. And and so even after Joe passed away, uh, we had these stacks of notebooks to, to work from. So how much time did you actually spend with Joe one-on-one firsthand? 
So I met, you know, with Joe a dozen or so times. He was uh, getting weaker as time went on, and I didn't want to you know, push it too hard. Um, so I, I don't remember the exact count. But enough to get the sort of his firsthand um, testimony and a real feel for who he was. But as I say, it was really all that documentation that Judy had kept that allowed me in the long run to uh, to get a lot of the really fine-grained detail that uh, that I always look for in a story. So now, what other kind of corroborative research did you do? Was there a lot of other research you had to do, or was it mainly from Judy and, and Joe? Oh, no, this was a massive research <laughs> project. Um, I've, well, for one thing, uh, through Judy, uh, I reached out to the family members of all the other eight young, then young men who had been in the boat with Joe. And, and all nine of these families were, were extremely interested in what I was doing and extremely helpful. So they came to me with boxes of letters and diaries and news clippings, and, and they sat down with me for, gosh, probably hundreds of hours of interviews um, so that I could develop the other uh, major characters in the book. And, and then, of course, I did a lot of, um, I spent a lot of time at the University of Washington Library reading microfilmed uh, newspaper articles from the 1930s. One of the, one of the real advantages I had was that in the 1930s, rowing, which we think of as a very obscure sport now in some ways, rowing was enormously popular as a spectator sport. Hmm. And as, as a result of that, it was also kind of a golden era of sports writing. And so um, the, the newspapers from the 1930s, the East Coast papers and the papers out here on the West Coast, were just full of long, beautifully written, very detailed articles, not just about the major races, but um, for weeks before a race, there would be stories about you know, what this coach's strategy was or whether that coxswain had a sore throat or whatever. There was just an amazing amount of um, reportage uh, about the sport. And so that that helped a lot, too. Hmm. It sounds like the story actually became richer and richer the more you did the research. Is that what you sort of found? Yeah, absolutely. And that doesn't always happen, you know, when you start a project like this. Well, for one thing, when I started this, as committed as I was after I met Joe, I only knew Joe. It could have been Joe and eight jerks in a boat for all I knew that first day. Um, but this was this was a case where things just got better and better as I dug into the story. All nine of these guys turned out to be just really remarkable young men. And new unexpected topics opened up as I dug deeper and deeper into this story. I learned a ton about Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Um, and and I was I felt it important to pull some of that into the book. Um, I found this wonderful character named George Pocock, who who built these beautiful handcrafted um, wooden racing shells that that folks rode in those days. And Pocock turned out to be one of the most interesting characters in the story. He was a sage-like. Um, almost mystical figure who had an enormous amount of influence over, over Joe Rance in particular, but over all these young men and helped shape uh, their view of the world and, and helped shape their, um, how, they, how they became the great crew that they did. So how long did it take you to write the whole book from beginning to end? I think it was about uh, 
four and a half years. And, you know, if I broke that down into man hours or man years, I would say probably three of that was just research and maybe a year and a half of it, the actual writing. Uh, I do a lot of research, a lot of, um, a lot of very fine-grained, detailed research so that I can create uh, scenes that are, you know, factually accurate, but also have the kinds of texture that will, um, will bring it uh, to life for the reader. And do you write as you do, do you write along as you do the research or do you all the research and then you just sit down and start writing? Is it like two phases or you do the writing as you're doing the research? Yeah, so it's it's kind of complicated. Basically, I spent probably the first year uh, on this book project just doing research. And what I did in that first year was just basically trying to get my my head around the large scope of the story. So actually what I did is I wound, I wound up creating a, a timeline, which was just a, I think about a 12-page single-spaced Word document that was just a list of events that happened things that happened to Joe Rance, things that happened to other guys in the crew, things that happened in Germany, things that were happening in America that seemed like they might be relevant. So I spent about a year just creating this timeline so I could see the overarching, you know, arc of the story, the sweep of the story. And then, um, and then what I typically do, what I did with this book was I go back and I say, okay, I see the stuff that needs to go in the book and I see the stuff that really doesn't need to go in and the way I write is I start at scene, act one, scene one, basically. I start with the first scene in the book. Um, and I think, I think in terms of scenes rather than chapters, the first scene in this book has these guys walking across the campus on October 9th, 1933, and going down to the shell house to try out for crew. Hmm. And, um, and then I research that scene in as much detail as I can. I find out what the weather was that day. I find photographs that were taken on the campus that week. I read the newspapers the students were reading that day. Um, I talked, I had talked to both uh, Roger Morris, one of the other crew uh, guys and Joe about that day. And, and so I get, I get as much uh, detail as I can, as much as I need. And then I sit down and I write that first scene. I put it in a drawer. I move on to the next scene and the next scene and the next scene. And at some point, of course, I come back and pull that first scene out of the drawer and I look at it. And I always see an enormous amount of stuff that I can improve once I have set it aside for a couple of weeks. Mm. And so then I start uh, revising that. And so I wind up in a process that's sort of iterative. I I do a big sweep of research first, but then I, I do a much more focused research as I'm moving through the manuscript. What was the most difficult thing, would you say, about writing this book? Uh, I think containing the story, because there were nine, char- nine sort of principal characters, well, really more than that if you encounter Pocock and, and the coaches, um, there were a lot of moving parts, and there was a certain amount of history I wanted to weave in. And... Um, yeah, it's always hard. I think restraint is one of the hardest things in writing a book like this. You could write down everything you know about these guys and the times and crew and so on. And that would be a, a very unfortunate thing to do. So it's always hard to know uh, where to draw the boundaries and where to pull back and where to not include something. Mm. For instance, I became kind of obsessed as I was reading about Germany in the 1930s, and I realized how the Nazis had used um, 
the Olympics uh, to as a propaganda tool uh, to sort of conceal what was really happening in, in Nazi Germany. I, I became pretty obsessed with that whole part of the story, and I, I, I wrote probably four times as much as really was helpful to the story. And, uh, and then I had to, I had to, you know, pull back and see that and, and cut most of it out. And so there's always this dance between too much and too little. And in, in this case, because the story was big and complex, I think the biggest challenge was, um, was just not, you know, finding, finding where that, that important element of restraint could come in and make the book better. Now, I'm sure you enjoyed, you know, writing the whole book, but if you had to describe maybe a few of the chapters or a few of the scenes that you really enjoyed writing the most, what would you say those were? Yeah, there was, uh, there was one, one chat, one scene that I, that I sort of held out as a reward to myself. In fact, I wrote past it. As I say, I basically write sequentially, uh, working my way through the manuscript, but there was one scene I really wanted to write. And, and so I held it out, uh, to myself as a reward. And I wrote it relatively late in the process. And it just, it was a particular crew race that happened in uh, June of 1936. And it was so dramatic. And the, um, the dynamics around it uh, were so um, remarkable that I, uh, I, I, I just thought it, if, if I can get that one scene right, that in itself will have made all this effort worthwhile. And um, it was a race in which our, the, the, the guys were following this crew from, from Washington, uh, had to win this race in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Bobby Mock, the coxswain, um, decided uh, pretty much on his own volition to hold the boat way, way back. This was a long race, a four-mile race. And his coach had told him not never to get more than two lengths back. But Bobby Mock held the boat four lengths back for the first three miles of this race. And only about the last quarter mile of the fourth mile, he finally turned his boat loose. And they just mowed down. All the boats in the field were ahead of them. And, and, the, and they came from the rear of the field. And they just blew past uh, Cal and all the other entrants in the in the race, and it was um, it was just a remarkable scene, and and really what catapulted them forward to the Olympics. So I, I very much, um, as I say, anticipated uh, writing that. Very much looked forward to writing it. When I go out and I I do talks about the book, I often read from that passage because I just still that that race still gives me uh, goosebumps. Mm. Did you ever try to uh, get on a boat and just try rowing just to get a feel for what it's like on the water or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have boat. <laughs> I've been in a boat a, a, a couple of times. Um, you couldn't really call it rowing. It was more like um, flailing at oars. It, it really is much harder than it looks, you know, and not just it's hard in a physical backbreaking way. I mean, rowing. Uh, particularly at this pretty elite level, requires an enormous amount of fitness. It's, it's almost impossible to overstate that. But in addition to that, in addition to how hard it is physically, the mechanics of the sport are, are really tough. Getting the blade of the oar in and out of the water at precisely the right moment and at precisely the right angle um, is just when, when everybody's rowing at 30 or 40 strokes per minute, 
is just incredibly difficult. There's all kinds of very fine uh, coordination that goes into it. And, um, and there's also a lot of mental um, strength required because it kind of demands this extraordinary amount of focus. So I, I did it enough to realize that it's, um, it's way harder. <laughs> well, I have some familiarity with this because my youngest daughter is actually a rower, so I, I know some of the stuff of what you're talking about. Terrific. So let me ask you, what was Judy's reaction when the book was finished? I'm sure she was just completely blown away and I'm sure it was very emotional for her. But tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, Judy, um, first of all, in terms of emotion, I mean, Judy, whatever degree of heart there is in the story, a lot of it comes from Judy and through me and onto the page. I spent hundreds of hours with Judy. Many of those hours, uh, she was in tears. She was so close to her father and just adored her father. And he had some really hard things that he went through. So, um, so she really poured her heart into this story. Uh, and, and when the book came out, since the book has come out and it's been over three years now, she's just been transported by it. I mean, it's changed her life. She herself goes around the country talking about the book and about her dad. And it's, uh, she told me the other day, it's, it's the biggest thing that ever happened to her. So that, that makes me feel, feel really good. Um, Joe, Joe Rance, who's really is at the center of the book, was just a remarkable man. And, you know, I am just so honored and flattered to have been able to bring him to life and to make Judy happy, to make actually all the family members also have been very, very positive about the book. And that more than anything else, that really um, that really pleases me. It, it makes makes all that work very much worthwhile. Now, did she read a lot of the manuscript before it was done, or you didn't show it to her until the book was finished? No, I, I made a point of, um, we worked very closely, and so she saw the first draft of every chapter as uh, when I finally put the scenes together into chapters, uh, I, it went first to Judy and to my wife, and Judy um, provided lots and lots of feedback, very constructive feedback. She's a very good writer herself. And um, so both on the level of fact-checking me and also in terms of um, making suggestions about improving the narrative, uh, she was enormously helpful. Now, the book obviously has been wildly successful. Tell me a little bit about you know, why you think it has been so successful. What, what, what is it that resonates so well and what you've learned about it, obviously, since it's been written and from your readers? Yeah, you know, I've been somewhat surprised. I mean, I certainly hoped the book would do well, thought it would do reasonably well, but it has far exceeded my expectations and the publisher's expectations. I think, um, I think there's a number of factors that are going into it. Partly it's, um, it's a very positive, uplifting story in a time when, um, times seem sort of troubled on a national level. And it takes us back to a time when, um, Answers seemed a little simpler, I, I guess. I, I, think, I, think ultimately, um, I think ultimately the success comes from the fact that when people come away from it, they see um, in these nine young men who uh, stepped in a boat and learned to pull together so powerfully and so beautifully I think they see what I do, which is that this is sort of a metaphor for what humans are capable of 
when they give their all, when they do it with a good heart, um, they're, they're capable of pulling together, forming great teams, getting great things done. And, you know, historically, Americans have been a people that have been good at building great teams and pulling together. And I think that's kind of not necessarily as true these days as it has been historically. And so I think it's a I sometimes tell people that, you know, this is a lot like the Jesse Owens story, but the Jesse Owens story also from the 36 Olympics, of course, was partly about race and it was largely also about individual achievement. This is a story about a great team achievement. And I think it reminds us that we've that we have historically been good at building great teams and and pulling together. And I, I, I really think there's a hunger for that mm. out there. Now, this book seems like it is perfect for a movie. Tell me a little bit about if if that is being made or what is the status of, of that, if any? Yeah. So, well, we optioned the, the rights um, right after before the book came out. Uh, the Weinstein Company. Um, uh, exercise that option, bought the film rights a couple of years ago. And um, I, I don't, I'm not really in the loop. Uh, once I sold the film rights, they, they really are controlling that. I do hear from them periodically. Uh, last I heard, they are, um, they're working on a script. They've been through several iterations of a script. And um, it's been sort of start and go as far as I can tell, but I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that that means they're going to get it into production pretty soon. Now, were all the other rowers alive and were able to, I know Joe died, but were all the other rowers alive and able to read the book? Uh, no, unfortunately, only one other, Roger Morris, was still alive. And Roger lived about a year, and uh, he was helpful, and his family was very helpful. But unfortunately, they had all passed away, um, gosh, at least a year, a couple years before the book came out. So none of them... Uh, got to see the story told on this level. And, and, you know, that's unfortunate. I take some solace in the fact that I I often ask the family members, do you think your dad would have, uh, you know, liked this book? Would he have approved of it? And so far they've all, they've all said that they think that they, you know, whichever dad it was would, uh, or granddad would have very much been pleased by it. So I take some solace from that, but I really do wish that, uh, I wish they'd been around to see how well it's done and, and how big the story's become. Bobby Mock, the coxswain in the boat, was a great advocate for this story. Uh, he spent a lot of the rest of his life trying to get the story told on a larger scale. So I particularly wish that, uh, that Bob Mock had seen what happened. Do you ever think to yourself, if only I'd met Judy five years earlier? Oh, yeah. I mean, five years earlier, almost all of them were alive. As In fact, they all, they all lived, um, it, with one exception, they all lived into their late 80s or 90s. And um, yes, absolutely. Five years before, I, I could have gotten even more, you know, texture, I think, from, from interviews with them while they were alive. But but on the other hand, I have to say, the the family members were these families had held on to this story for at that point 75 years and almost universally they had want, wanted the story told mm-hmm. so it wasn't like they had to dig deep into their memories they had been keeping it alive amongst themselves talking about it they had collected and saved every letter or diary uh, and so forth news clipping and so, you know, that was that was enormously helpful. But, yeah, obviously it would have been even better if, if they had all been alive. 
Well, now that you've written such an incredible book with such an incredible story, I'm, and I'm sure this is always challenging for anything. Sort of, do you ever think, "Gosh, am I? How am I going to? How am I going to do better than this? How am I going to find another story that's going to be as good as this?" Do you think about that a lot, or are you uh, at that stage yet? No, I'm very much at that stage. Um, I've been thinking about it basically since the day uh, the Boys in the Boat came out. It's a big challenge. When a book is very successful, you obviously don't want to write a book that, um, you know, seen as a, a disappointment as the next book. But it's very hard to, to find out there in the world a true story. This is all nonfiction. So it's hard to find a really great true story that hasn't already been dealt with to some extent or to find one that has been dealt with, but you can bring a new angle to it and really and really make it fresh <clears throat> it's a huge challenge um and um i think i'm getting close i mean i'm i'm not quite ready to say what i'm going to do next but i'm i've narrowed it down pretty much and I, I i have a pretty good hunch of where i'm going with the next oh, book how exciting did you take after this book was written how long between books how long do you sort of take where you just don't even think about the next project or do you really, literally just start thinking about that the next day um you know, that the smart thing would be to start thinking about it the next day, I think. But this book, because it sort of took off in an unexpected way and became bigger than I had expected, it sort of has taken over my life. I mean, I've spent the last three years <clears throat> running around the country giving talks about it. And, and I've totally enjoyed that because there's so much wonderful, positive energy out there when I, when I talk to people about the book. But by virtue of that, by, the, by virtue of the fact that I've been running all over the country talking about this story, it really keeps this story, The Boys in the Boat, alive in my head. And, and that, that makes it really tough to start another story because, I don't know, in my brain at least, there seems to only be room for one story at a time. And um, so to the extent that I, I keep going around talking about The Boys in the Boat, it is, it is hard to, um, to let another story start taking hold of, of you. I think at some point, kind of a harsh thing to say, but I think at some point you just sort of have to kill off that earlier book um, and, and, and open yourself up to new possibilities. Well, when I hear your enthusiasm and, and how rich the story was and all the characters and personal interactions, I mean, it sounds like you had so much fun writing this book. Was it even work? <laughs> no, yeah, I mean... Yes and no. I mean, you know, the reality of sitting in a library for eight hours hunched over a microfilm uh, reader reading articles from the 1930s for day after day after day. In that sense, it can be work. But I absolutely love it. The, the, the process of writing the book and the several years since the book's come out when I've been talking about it with people, it's by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my professional life, my working life. It's just been enormously fun. It's been enormous. It's been a great honor to write about these, these young men because they were so extraordinary. It's been rewarding to see the reactions of the families. It's wonderful to, um, to stand in front of a group of people, all of whom have read the book and all of whom have just loved it and, and, and understand that it's moved people uh, on a personal level. One of the things that really surprised me when you're writing a book, you're sitting in your study or wherever writing a book, you kind of forget about the fact that there are real people out there and that, and that this might have real effects on, on their lives. 
And I've been really kind of stunned with this book. People come up to me after I do readings and they tell me that, you know, they read the book to their father as he was in the hospital in the last week of his life. And it brought a smile to his uh, face or they tell me they're giving a copy of it to a young man who has uh, lost a leg in Afghanistan and faces a long rehabilitation. And uh, almost every time I give a talk, people come up to me and tell me how the book has affected people in their lives. And that's, I mean, that's really the most rewarding thing of all. And the most, for me, unexpected thing. I, I had not anticipated that. Well, Daniel, this has been a fascinating conversation. Such a powerful story. I really appreciate your taking the time. And when you come up with your next idea, which I'm sure will be fantastic, you please will have to come back and tell me about it. I'd be happy to do that. This is Richard Chu and Daniel James Brown. Thank you.